HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. On today's episode, Andrea Fazzari finds out what it means to be Japanese as a world traveler, an anthropological photographer, and now author of Tokyo New Wave, 31 Chefs Defining Japan's Next Culture, Next Generation. <laughs> now, profiling a new generation of Japanese cooks in the kitchen, those that run sushi counters, late night izakayas, French bistros, Italian trattorias and ramen shops, they're ushering a new era of modernity with the deepest respect tradition. And it is your intuitive interviews, insightful imagery that really kind of center us and and project this love letter to this place where you now call home. Yes. So it, it, it's a beautiful book. Thank you, Michael. But even more so is the way that this is such a personal tome. It's not just yes. about Japan. It's not just about these Japanese chefs, but it's no. through your vision and through your lens. Absolutely. It is extremely personal. Uh, the choices that I made, the chefs that I chose, uh, as I said before, this is not at all a ranking a book that measures stars or accolades, anything like that. It's, it's solely a selection of, of chefs and creative people based on my personal feelings with them and what came across when I was in their company. But how did someone with an Italian last name from the Upper East Side find themselves in the middle of Tokyo <laughs> amongst these 31 chefs? <laughs> well, I decided to move there in 2015, but actually the thought process started many, many, many years ago because I went to uh, Japan for the first time, I'd say about 18 years ago, 19 years ago, when my sister and brother-in-law were living there. And my niece was born in Tokyo. So I went to see them, and I was immediately entranced and fascinated by Tokyo and Japan in general, because I explored quite a bit at the time. And I vowed that I would go back to live there one day. 
And uh, between that time and, and 2015, when I did go, I went to live in other places. I lived in Italy, France, Spain, Hong Kong. And, uh, but I finally made it. Everything just fit, and I decided it was time. Yeah, but you're not a tourist. You're more of a traveler. Absolutely. And, and when you travel, you kind of assimilate into whatever society. Yes, is. I stay for an extended yeah. period. Even on assignments, if I go somewhere for an assignment, I stay at least two weeks. I'm not somebody to go just for a few days. And you see assignment as a photographer, right. but even before any of this, the photos, the writing, yes. the, the, this passion for you know this food culture, yes. you were in fashion and film. Exactly, I was, yes. I started out in fashion right after university. Um, I thought I wanted to be in fashion. I did public relations for uh, Dolce Gabbana, Armani, uh, companies like that. And yes, I went to work for Miramax Films. I did publicity for them. Um, but it wasn't for me, I discovered. It didn't feel authentic. It didn't feel honest. It didn't feel comfortable. It, it actually fostered a lot of anxiety, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Very stressful. Um, and to me, it was fake. Uh, so I became a photographer in a way that was kind of serendipitous, uh, but meant to be because photography was a hobby of mine at the time, and I loved it. And friends would are even telling me today, oh, you always carried a camera around, which I don't really remember, but I guess I did. Um, but, um, you know, even in, in school, I, I would photograph friends and do portraiture, and on vacation, I would always take photos. Um, and becoming a photographer just happened. I was actually living in Paris, just to tell you quickly, and my father fell ill in New York City, and I came back, and uh, it was a very serious thing. And I thought that I wouldn't be able to go back to Paris, where I was actually doing shoe design. I was at a shoe design school. I had left fashion already, and Miramax already. Um, and I saw a Travel and Leisure magazine on a coffee table in my parents' apartment, and I started flipping through it, and I noticed I got sort of nervous looking at it and anxious, thinking, I could do that. I could take those photos. I want to do that. Something came over me, and I decided that while I was in New York, I was going to call Travel and Leisure and see if I could find out, how do you become a photographer? <laughs> and that's what I did, um, and my father improved, thank God, and um, after persistent calling over and over again, I was connected to the assistant to the photo editor there. And I said, hello, my name is Andrea Fazari. I'd like to learn how to become a photographer. And we clicked in conversation. He eventually put me through to the editor-in-chief, who was Jim Franco at the time. We landed up meeting. He liked me. We got along. And he said to me, how would you like to work in the photo department for me? He offered me a job after we met. And I said, yes. <laughs> so that's how I became a photographer. You know, it, it really is about felicity. So funny enough, I looked back at 2004, uh, Photo District News, oh, you a.k.a. Found it? PBN, because yes. <laughs> I won a photo annual that year as a student. Oh, you did? So I remember looking through and the, you know, 30 photographers to watch. Yes, that was a big deal. Yeah, mm. was, and you were in that issue. Yes. And I, I had that same kind of semblance of thought. How do I do this? I yes. love this work. How do I become a travel photographer? Right. And I think this is actually going back to your first occupations in design and, and, and film in mm. that, you know, Tokyo is so rife with design and cinematic qualities. Yes. There's almost no better place to be to test those things. I agree. Everything sort of comes together. I'm also extremely interested in architecture and design. And of course, fashion is still an interest of mine. And it does all come together. And it's part of my vision, part of the way I see things and even experience a restaurant. But to me, everything emanates from food 
Or you could say everything comes together in food. So to focus on food means not just to focus on the actual ingredients, but to also notice and discover everything around that, everything that contributes to that. So it's also the design of the restaurant. It's the uh, personality of the chef. That's huge for me, personality. Um, how I feel. I notice how I feel, my physical feelings when I'm in a restaurant, um, that sense of emotion, excitement, and of course, the farmers that supply the ingredients. You know, where are those farmers? And I've explored a lot of Japan and I've visited a number of farmers as well in like southern Japan, especially. I have yet to go all the way up to Hokkaido, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, but so I discover also things about politics. Um, all sorts of things come from food, as you well know. Yeah, it's a very interesting gateway in the same way that omotenashi mm, or the selfless... yes, the hospitality. But but they're very similar in that they open up this world, this mm-hmm. kind of unexpected world that is a microcosm of everything that's happening. Absolutely. Um, by, by paying such attention to every detail yes. and personalizing that's it. That's another reason why I wanted to live in Tokyo, or, because the detail, the attention to detail is so beautiful for me it, it's it's so heartwarming and it's essential and it makes me feel so alive and when I encounter so many people who appreciate these details as much as I do I get excited because I feel understood and so Tokyo and Japan in general especially Tokyo is a place that's very comfortable to me I feel very at home there uh, even though there are a lot of things I don't understand and I never will it's impossible, I think, as a non-Japanese to ever fully understand everything. I still feel very comfortable there and at home. Well, I mean, that's why this is a love letter. It's aspirational, Absolutely. but at the same time, it's an anthropological study. Absolutely. That was in the proposal from day one when I started thinking about this book. Uh, it's anthropological because I also ask a lot of questions in the interviews, but I also ask very abstract questions, which were, for some chefs were very difficult to answer. And one of my favorite questions was, in fact, to you, what does it mean to be Japanese? That To me, that's a very interesting question. And for some chefs, it was a struggle to put together a response, and some answered immediately, and some wanted to think about it a little while because they, most of them said they'd never been asked such a question. Well, if I ask you that question right now, how would Is you it, respond before you did this book? And how would you respond to that now? About what it means to be Japanese? Yes. Hmm. Well, for me, before I wrote this book, I had some ideas. And some of the chefs did answer similarly to the ideas that I had, meaning you know, the, the attention to detail, which I just touched on. Um, the sense of um, the Shintoism is very evident, too. The gods and everything, even in the, the nature, the trees, the flowers, the water. Um, I think the importance of nature is huge in Japan, and I think also natural disasters have shaped a lot of the way Japan is as far as um, habits, ways of being, ways of acting. Um, I think uh, what it means to be Japanese is to be very respectful, to be very well-mannered, to be, to be polite, to also be reserved, um, outwardly reserved, to use silence quite a bit. I think silence is a... Um, the use of silence in Japan is, is, um, is very different from the way we use silence in the West, I'd say. They use silence to communicate something, and you have to learn to decipher what that is. And it's hard sometimes even for Japanese themselves. So I had these ideas, and they've just become more profound living there. They, living there has affirmed some of my um, thoughts and feelings that I, that I had visiting over the years. 
Um, but now, too, Japan is even more for me about warmth, which some people think don't understand that because they find sometimes that Japanese can be removed or、uh, detached. And instead, I, I have found a great deal of warmth. They just communicate it differently. I agree. And, you know, we'll kind of jump into the chefs because there is one person who was kind of my introductory、uh, into. Warmth and hospitality、mm -hmm. and Japan as a whole, because the、mm -hmm. first time I ever went, my first true dinner was at Den. Den, of Jimbo course. Zayu. Yeah. Zayu Hasegawa. And let's talk about Zayu and his cherubic cheeks and <laughs> Pucci Jr. Yes, I and, talk about his cheeks. Yeah. And that one big beauty mark on his cheek.、Um, yes, he is unique in that he is extremely warm, ebullient, and open. And he's Genki, which is the perfect Japanese word to describe him, which is a combination of happiness and high energy.、Uh, his sort of joy, I would say, unfettered joy for what he does, comes across. He doesn't hide anything. And he, I think, is quite unique for this style of hospitality, being so extroverted. And he also has embraced the notion of,、uh, of foreign diners. Some restaurants still do not. Uh, and he encourages people from all over the world、uh, to come dine and experience his food and his brand of hospitality. And of course, Pucci Jr. And I knew Pucci Sr.、Yeah. I, I met Pucci Sr.、Yeah. Yes, we were and, lucky. And Pucci, by the way, is a dog. Yes, Pucci's <laughs> a dog, Chihuahua, long haired Chihuahua, brown and white, adorable. Pucci Sr. was black and white.、Um, and. Pucci's there. You can meet him when you go eat. And of course, Emmy, Zayu's wife, is very warm and welcoming as well. And they have this formula which seems seamless and selfless and just so kind and cozy. Yes. And it's back to that warmth. And obviously, you can't mention Den and you know, Zayu and Emmy without mentioning Noriko. Of course. Who is everything. Yes. And She oversees she, everything. I would call her the manager, or she's in charge of service. She, but she kind of oversees everything, and she's also part assistant to Zayu as well.、Um, she's sort of like the mechanism、uh, that keeps it going. But Zayu would tell you that big boss is Emmy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> His wife, yes. Well, I mean, th that's that warmth, though. You know, having that as my first dinner ever in Japan, well,、mm -hmm. I've counted myself very lucky.、Mm -hmm. uh, I had been passed along through some friends saying, oh, this is the guy to meet. You、yes. know, because he, he is that outrovert, but at the same time, he suffered from being such、mm -hmm. and lost a Michelin star,、right. what, two years ago、mm -hmm. for, for adapting what kaiseki cuisine is in right. Japan. Right. He's changed it. He's modernized it, so to speak. But he'll tell you it's not kaiseki. He'll tell you it's just Japanese cooking. Yeah. He'll say it's Nihon Ryori. And he did lose the star, but he gained it back、uh, this year,、um, which is lovely. And he. I think he will continue to refine his sense of what hospitality is. He likes to be inclusive.、Um, and I think he is a great example of the new wave, which is why I titled the book Tokyo New Wave, because many of his predecessors did not act like this at all. I think this is quite,、um, it's, it's quite new. Inclusive, and in that vein, International. You、right. Know, it, it's, it's not. He's, he's quite international. And he does so 
one of the kind of more well-known dishes that he does is his Kentucky fried yes. chicken. And obviously it's a riff on Kentucky yes. fried chicken, yes. deboning mm -hmm. a chicken wing. There's, there's a different stuffing every time you go, seasonal ingredients always. But then there's also this little flag of whatever nation you're from yep. on the a first time pick. you go it'll be it'll be personalized every time but especially the first time with a welcome sign or some sort of design something personalized that they found out about you before you arrive so that 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 however that choice of what to do is very new but the thought of personalizing your dining experience is not new Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the other 30 chefs defining Tokyo's sure. new wave. Thank you, You've been Michael. listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Andrea Fazari. I like how you mouthed it. I was, I'm still trying to get it. Andrea. <laughs> you pause yeah. at the Andrea, yeah. but Andrea. you're doing very well, Michael. Well, Thank I do you. the same thing in Japan. But again, let's let's talk about you know <laughs> the, the acceptance, uh, the the way that you know Zayu makes you feel accepted mm -hmm. is is. Again, kind of a very new concept. And I apologize to everybody for having talked about him for so long. It's a very hard reservation to get. <laughs> yes, it is. But when you get it, you'll understand what we're talking about mm. and certainly go and get it. Mm. But these other 30 chefs, I've been lucky enough to meet a couple of them mm -hmm. um, in uh, Nami-san, right. Nami Shinobu. Shinobu, Shinobu Nami. Um, mm -hmm. And then um, Sato-san. Mm -hmm. Hiroyuki Sato. And mm -hmm. they're two very, very different people. Oh, absolutely. Compared to Zayu? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. just compared to each other. Each other, absolutely. So talk to me who they are in the lexicon of this new wave of Tokyo cooks, of Japanese sure. chefs. Nami-san is um, very cerebral. Um, he has... A huge interest also in sustainability, and in he's a uh, activist against food waste. He also has traveled um, frequently and often to the United States, especially California, Northern California. He did a brief uh, stay at um, uh, in Berkeley. Oh, uh, 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 yes, thank you very much. Um, he also worked for Michel Bra in uh, northern Japan, and he that was one of his mentors, Michel Bra, and he worked at the Fat Duck in London as well. Um, he 
is quite international in his view, but he is also quite rooted in the traditions and the, um, let's say, the, the artisans of Japan. Like he often goes to uh, experience, you know, the fermentation of soybeans or the making of sake or the making of katsuboshi or the making of, of any of the ingredients that are used quite often. And I think that's so interesting about him because these shokunin, these craftspeople that yes, he's shokunin, going to visit, yes. I don't feel like many chefs in Japan went the lengths of actually going to the site of where they were getting their products from. Um, I think a lot do, but I, th- I think... Not to contradict you at all, but Name-san is more open about it. Yes. And he wants to share it because he he definitely is cognizant of the context of Japan within the world itself. Yeah. I think I think I meant more the the proprietary nature or like yeah. keeping it insular or close yes. to your close Exactly. To your yeah. Right. He he is more, you know, let's talk about this. Uh, and he is, extre- you know, he's very interesting, and and in fact, the two words I use to describe him most would be purpose and vision, and he has a way of um, tapping into uh, the significance of food, like we were saying before, in sort of a political way, in a in a cultural way, yes, but also political. He's very aware of of um, global warming and climate change and he has this side of him uh, which is very forward thinking so he he's he's a you know a bit more serious than Zayu let's say um but he's he has a ton of purpose and he wants to bring about a lot of change for the better and then seemingly Sato-san just wants to listen to Miles Davis and yeah, surfing right. <laughs> but let's talk That's... about these two world uh, two word definitions that you have throughout the book because mm. Sato-san is the definition of cool and calm. Absolutely. He embodies those two words. Um, It was something I just did naturally and organically when I started writing the um, manuscript. I just wrote down words that I felt I could easily associate with each of the chefs, and I think um, it encapsulates each one uh, rather well. Uh, And, yes, Sato-san is extremely laid back. He's... um, you know, very cool in appearance. He is doesn't ever seem to be worried or upset. He's also very welcoming and generous. Um, he's he's a bit quiet, but not reserved, I would say. And uh, he was this way from the moment I met him. I remember it so clearly, how he greeted me as if he'd known me already. And he spoke to me in this very casual way, which also is not super common in Japan. It usually doesn't happen that easily like it's there's more formality when you're first meeting someone which is so funny because the type of cuisine he serves well it's sushi in a sense yes it is but he is using a very particular vinegar in akasu a red vinegar and it's a vinegar from the 1860s and prior to Mm -hmm. that so he's doing this thing where he's going so far back into tradition that he's making it modern again because not many people use that because his rice you notice it at first some diners would look at it and think my god is that brown rice because the shari that he makes you know the seasoned rice is quite stained let's say the the vinegar really permeates it but it goes quite well with the fattiness of the fish but he would say he chooses it the other way around he chooses the fish to match the rice but i like i like him a lot he's just super cool and i've never had the opportunity or honor to go to Mm -hmm. florilege 
but I hear so much about him from other people because of how minimalist he is. Mm-hmm. And that's such a funny word to say in the context of Japanese culture as a whole and Japanese food because I think most of it is pretty minimalist. Mm-hmm. What makes this even more minimal? This is modern minimalism, which the plating is very stark and graphic in my view. Uh, he also uses ceramics predominantly from a uh, ceramicist who lives outside on the outskirts of Tokyo who's uh, Kumiko Takuyama, who's very talented. And the ceramics are very um, earthy, extremely earthy and very visual, very painterly. Um, streaks of color run through. And there's this sense of the earth and the terroir and everything when you sit down and this dish is put in front of you. But there's also a sort of... Uh, Modern, a modern painterly way that Koate has of plating his food. So it looks different than a lot of the other chefs in the book. Well, it looks a little Western. and There is also that. It was interesting to read that his father was, how do you say, uh, uh, Yoshoku yes, chef, a, yes. a Japanese Western style Right, cook. who makes foods that are European with a Japanese sort of zhuzh to them. Uh, so he grew up with those dishes. But... Is that ham, I, ham hamburger? Yeah. Hamburger, yeah. or napolitan, which is uh, spaghetti alla napolitana, which is pasta with actually ketchup and not tomato <laughs> sauce. But Coate San's dishes to me, you may say Western, but for me, he's very Japanese. And he did study for a little bit of time in France, but his cuisine is so distinctly of him that it feels wrong to say that he has, you know, his dishes are Western or that he has French technique. Um, He does use some French technique, but the overall picture for me is something that's a departure even from from that. Yeah, his recipe, and not all the chefs really have recipes because this is not a cookbook. Again, It's an anthropological (laughs) study of these chefs with recipes. Exactly. So (laughs) there's a recipe for Wagyu carpaccio with potato puree and beet consomme. Uh And again, parsley oil. I feel like just the colors of what I see and the shape of what I see. Did you see that dish? It looks like a painting. Yeah, exactly. But it, it... feels like fresh. I, I know it already but as well. But it's fresh. Yes. It's fresh. It's modern. It's different. And he uses a lot of Japanese ingredients in this way that is really unseen in any of the other restaurants, I believe. Then there's Lionel. Lionel Boca, yes. He is a very special, very artistic, very talented chef. And this is a Corsican guy of a Sicilian mother and a Tunisian He's father. He's actually not Corsican. He yeah. was born in Corsica, but gotcha. he's from Marseille. And his dad is Tunisian, and his mother is half Venetian, half Sicilian. So, But this is the only non-Japanese chef of the 31 that yes, you included in the book. Yes, I selected him for this honor. Yeah, well, <laughs> why is that? Well, I wanted him to be in the book because he's someone who's lived in Tokyo now for about 15 years. He is married to a Japanese woman and he has two children. So he's very much of Japan at this moment and of Tokyo. And he has some very interesting perspectives on what it's like to live in Japan, what it's like to cook in Japan, to be a chef in Japan with a predominantly Japanese staff. I mean, that is no small task. Um, And he does not speak fluent Japanese. Um, He is very, as I said before, he is artistic, but also quite intellectual. And our discussions always revolve around art. 
So we talk a lot about cinema. We talk a lot about architecture. So speaking to him is extremely stimulating. And we go great. We go in depth all the time. It's never superficial. So whenever I schedule an appointment with him, I know I have to block off three hours <laughs> because we just talk and talk and talk and talk. He has so many ideas. So his perspective as a foreigner in Japan, I think it will also be fascinating for the reader. And the first time I went to eat his food, I was transported, literally. I was touched. I felt moved. And it was an experience which I wanted to talk about. So I thought it was important to include him. So... How about the perspective of a woman? And I don't mean you as a woman, but that you have yes, one female chef in this book. Yes, there's Fumie Takeuchi, who is a sushi chef, and she is a force of nature. She, it took her a while to find her calling, and she has a lot of simultaneous, let's say, doubt and confidence. Um, not doubt with what she's doing or her profession, but doubt that she can, for example live up to someone's expectations or or give me what I needed, for example, for the book. Uh, collaborating with her was fascinating and to speak with her and hear about her journey and her background, her life experience with her family, but also trying to discover who she was, um, I think is, is really important to understanding Japan itself. So, of course, we've covered sushi, we've covered a little bit of kaiseki, but there are yakitori joints, there are uh, katsu sandwich places in the book. There are so many different kind of cuisines that, from there, defining what is Japanese and is yes, hard. It's, well, I also didn't want this to be a book just of Japanese cuisine in the, t in the traditional sense. However, it is a book all of Japanese cuisine because all of these chefs are Japanese. And even though some are cooking Italian and some are cooking uh, mutations of, of different cuisines or influences that they've had, at the end of the day, it's all Japanese. And it represents Tokyo, which is a mixture of so many different kinds of things. And if you go to Tokyo, you shouldn't just have the traditional. You must experience these innovative places or, or these chefs that are doing things that are a bit out of the box, like salmon and trout or what have you. Because you'll learn even more about Japan. It's just fascinating. And I know 31 chefs that you can go visit. And I know a guide, a book oh, yeah. <laughs> that you can get <laughs> yeah. to usher yourself through the wonderful world of Japan. Thank you so much for being on Thank air. Thank you so much, and Michael. Everyone should go out and get Tokyo New Wave. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Corn for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Tadashore Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.
ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.